Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Hey everyone, we're just popping a trigger warning on this sermon. Towards the end of the message, I talk a little bit about the complexities of holding the promises of God to protect us, alongside the reality that many of us know that God doesn't seem to always protect us from things that happen in this life. And in particular, I mention sexual assault and rape. And so if listening to this is not going to be good for you today, just give this sermon a miss. Truth be told, I have not been at church since February. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> it was like such a long time. It was this Sunday a month ago was the last time we were in church because of COVID. Like our house church was cancelled because of COVID and then we were in isolation across two Sundays. And so it feels... This whole month for us has felt just really disrupted and um, and that's all right. Thank you. It's good to be back. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the best laid plans. I think we're still learning how to hold things loosely and how to plan things and then adapt. So I know the last couple of Sundays, actually Oren preached last Sunday and I haven't heard it, but I presume it was amazing. Um, <laughs> Um, and then the Sunday before, I think we had to just pull it together because um, I was meant to preach, I think. But and Oren was in isolation. I was in like half the leadership team's been in isolation, so we, it's been a, been a bit of a throw together. So our intention on kind of sitting in the um, temptations of Jesus in the wilderness passage, which, which are the pictures you can see around, which may be familiar to you if you have been at church or may not be. We, it's sort of not worked out the way we originally planned, which is, that's fine. Um, So usually what we do is, you know, we take a passage a month and we sit in it and we look at it through different perspectives and just stretch ourselves in reading scripture um, with through different lenses and hearing different voices and how different people understand different parts of scripture. And um, that hasn't quite happened the way we planned this month. So tonight I'm going to be talking about um, this passage of scripture, but not necessarily through any particular lens, but just pulling out a few things from the passage that I had hoped would come out through the month that haven't. So it's, I guess you could just say it's my perspective, <laughs> which is not the intention of what we do this. But anyway, I want to read um, two versions of this. So this this um, account of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, And so I want to read the Mark and the Matthew version of this and then we'll just, um, I want to pull out a few different things. Mark, as always, um, if if he can say it in the least amount of words possible, Mark does. Um, So he's often very succinct and the more you read Mark, the more you have and develop an appreciation for him for the author's um, very great use of very small words. <laughs> so there's often a lot in, in the book of, of Mark, even though there's not a lot of words. So Mark chapter 1 and verses 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Now, I'm not going to talk about this, but I wanted to at a different time. 
what is not, what, this is what, what, when you say Mark includes like a lot in a very little amount of words. That, just so you know, like that journey from Nazareth in Galilee to where John was baptising people in the Jordan is 160 kilometres. So to even just imagine, you know, Mark just says it in like half a sentence, but that's a long time for Jesus to, to leave home, walk 160 kilometres. What's that? You can't walk on the Sabbath. So let's say you're walking six days. 27 k's a day. I don't know, is that, is that fair for Jesus? Maybe it is. He was fit and young. That's a long journey. Anyway, just that. It's like, that's a lot. Anyway, he leaves home, walks 160 kilometres to be baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So that's Mark's version of the temptation in the wilderness. From Matthew just skipping the bit about the baptism of Jesus, which he repeats and is preceded right before that. A voice comes from heaven, this is my son whom I loved, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Duh. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, which is from Psalm 91. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. And so we have this... These two accounts, and Luke shares a very similar account to Matthew of Jesus in the wilderness. And um, so I want to share some thoughts that I've had as I've been sitting in this passage for, for a while now. And just my hope is that out of some of the things I share tonight, God might speak to you about something that's relevant for your life, that something might land, that God's spirit would lead you towards the understanding of some truth and some goodness for your own self. Um, 
One of the things I want to say before I go any further is this is one of those, I think, particular passages of scripture that the way we read it is, is affected quite deeply by how we understand the nature of Jesus as both 100% human and 100% divine. So that is an experience of reality. That is not what you and I necessarily have. We are not 100% divine. <laughs> we are 100% human. But Jesus, in our theological, you know, mathematics, is 100% God, 100% human. And how we feel about those percentages, how we read scripture, this is a particular passage that we're going to land on one side of the humanity or the divinity of Jesus as we read it. That's inevitable. It's actually inevitable for nearly the entire way you read scripture, but I think it particularly is, is it's a bit heavier in this, in this passage. And I just want to admit that I struggle to fully comprehend what the heck that means in reality for Jesus. And I imagine that many of us do too. If you have completely nailed the essence of Jesus in his double 100 percentageness, please come and instruct me at some point in the future because I, it's just one of those mysterious things that I think is hard to grasp. But I think that if I'm honest about how this sort of, how I was given this understanding, and I'm not saying this is what anyone told me, but this is kind of like how I learnt it. I would have said that I was given a particular imagination of Jesus, that his birth and his death were particularly divine. Like there were miracles and divine interventionist type things happening at his birth and at his death. And that was kind of like wonderful. And then the bit of his life in the, in the middle was sort of offered up to me as an offering that said, here, Caro, this is how to, to lead the spirit-filled life. And so I was given like heavy divinity of Jesus at the beginning and at the end of his life and a large dose of humanity in the middle. And then when I heard verses lobbed at me like, you know, if you do my, what is it? Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever, um, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things. That to me just felt like a grenade in my life upon the spirit-filled life. Like I almost felt like Jesus was held up as an impossible standard that I could never reach. But I was told that that's what it looked like to live the spirit-filled life. But I actually feel like there's more nuance in it than that because Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. Are we called to do things like Jesus? Well, yeah, it seems to say that we are. Are we Jesus? Uh, no. So <laughs> I live a fairly ordinary and mediocre life in comparison to some of the wonders of Jesus. And I guess I've had to learn how to make sense of that. So I, I'm saying all of that to give a caution to us against simply reading this passage as, look, Jesus resisted temptation and you can too. 
Like, it's got to be more than that for all of us because, quite frankly, we all suck a little bit at resisting temptation. And if we've just got this benchmark of Jesus we have to try and live up to, then our spiritual lives become a version of a tyranny that is hard to live with. And so it's got to be more than that. But it also can't be less than that. So I'm just giving you some of my complex thinking to do with what you will. But I do think it, you know... How we land on this does affect some of this stuff. Okay, so all of that. Here, let, let's just totally segue. I, this is, I want you to do something for me. With your hands, I want you to point to where your spiritual life is located. With your hands, like... Point to where your spiritual life is located. I've seen a few people do this. People are doing this. People are doing this. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, yeah, that's something just like this. Head, heart, body, gut, soul. This is where our spiritual life is located. I want to make a suggestion to you tonight. You completely don't have to agree with me. My suggestion is that both the experience Jesus had at his baptism of the heavens opening, a dove falling down and the audible voice of God saying, this is my son whom I love, followed very quickly by this experience of being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness was an experience for Jesus that happened here in his innermost being, in his spiritual life. Um, the reason I think that is that, for just some practical things, like if, if you were on the edges of the Jordan on the day Jesus was baptised, Ordinary dudes, just walk 160 kilometres, looks a bit scruffy and dusty, walks into the water, is baptised for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. Then boom, the heavens open and birds are flying. And there's a voice from the sky saying, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. What are you thinking? If you're, if you're a spectator, what are you thinking? Get me out of here. Who is this person? What's going on? If I think if it was an actual audible experience for the crowd, everybody would have followed Jesus into the wilderness. They were waiting for the Messiah. I mean, I've never heard an audible voice from heaven for myself, let alone for any one of you. I, and then also to, to, to tap into that is the idea that John the Baptist, the very man who baptised Jesus, when he's put into prison, what does he send people to ask Jesus? Are you the one? If he was there with an audible voice coming from heaven and a flying dove saying, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Do you think John the Baptist would need to ask that question? My suggestion is Jesus himself was the one that heard those words. It was an inner endorsement of the Spirit of God. 
And my suggestion is that when he goes into the wilderness, the experience of being tempted by the accuser was an inner experience, not a literal, literal, literal encounter with the devil. And I think one of the things that dignifies this whole episode for me about the humanity of Jesus is he had to work out the inner nature and the location of a spiritual life in exactly the same way that you and I need to figure out how to have an inner spiritual life, how to discern between the voices that rise up within, the voices that say, you are the beloved of God and God is pleased with you. To trust that voice when it comes to you, to trust that it's the spirit of God, to trust the love of God that comes up in you. And you also need to learn how to listen cautiously to other voices that sound a lot like a serpent that rise up within you to tempt you away from the way of God. And so one of the things I think that has just that is just beautiful in this experience is that it's it's giving us a very human experience that Jesus had in the same way that we have very human experiences of a spiritual life. We need to learn how to have an inner spiritual life. Jesus had to learn how to have an inner spiritual life. He had to learn how to attune his ear to the voice of heaven. He had to learn how to listen wisely to the voice of evil that rose within him. He needed to learn to lean into one and accept the blessing of God and resist the other in the same way that you and I do. And the fact that that process in my inner spiritual life is a lifelong journey gives me hope that for Jesus it was a learning journey as well. That he had to learn how to tune his ear to the voice of heaven and he had to learn how to close his ears to the voice of temptation and in some ways it dignifies the inner experience that we have that our spiritual life is located somewhere in here but God dignifies it by having a spiritual experience in his own flesh and blood and I, I just want to say that because I think sometimes we're often looking for things out there to to justify or confirm or build up our own spiritual life. But Jesus gives us a model that the spiritual life does actually happen within and that there's a way to build a robust spirituality within our own selves. And so, you know, what's going on in your head and your heart is real, is often good and holy, is sometimes temptation you need to resist. But it's, it happens sort of within us. So we could say, in light of all of this, that the temptations that Jesus faces in the wilderness kind of arise up out of Jesus' human nature, that Jesus has a human nature and that the temptations that Jesus faces are the temptations for him to take up his task in ways that are unfaithful to his calling. And he has to learn to resist the unfaithful ways that will be laid out before him and instead to hold on to who God has called him to be, who he really is as the son of God. He has to learn the path that God is calling him to walk and not be tempted to take a different route. And I think this is what Jesus wrestles with in the, the wilderness. It's, Mark says he was tempted for 40 days 
Matthew and Luke say he fasted for 40 days and then was tempted. I don't think it matters. The whole experience probably was uncomfortable. And the only way we know about it at all is because Jesus talked about it at some point to his disciples. No one else was there. So the only reason we have an account of it is because Jesus himself must have talked about it. I don't know when. Maybe he talked about it in the years of his ministry and every now and then he'd tell them a bit of a story about, oh, one time before I called you guys, I went out in the desert for 40 days. I got really hungry and felt really tempted to do it all the wrong way. And and then they would be like, oh, how are you tempted, Jesus? And Jesus is sitting there going, oh, how do I explain this? And he goes, oh, it's like, <laughs> oh, well, there was kind of like three main temptations. I just kind of felt like this one came at me heaps. And then, like, that's probably how the whole account came. I don't know. Like, no one else was there. So it comes out of Jesus' self-explanation of his inner experience to the people that he loved and who followed him. Maybe he told, maybe this was one of the stories he told them after he rose from the dead and he spent time with them and he was like, hey, I need to fill you in on a few things. You might want to write it down. <laughs> Some people might find this helpful. I don't know. We don't know. All we know is that this account comes out of Jesus' own self-explanation. So it's Jesus communicating this to his followers. One of the things that I think is amazing about this account is that each of these temptations, and I do, I want to talk about them a little bit. We'll see how we, we go. Each of these temptations for Jesus is a movement away from being human. So the accuser comes to him and is tempting him to be like God. Who does that sound like? The serpent in the garden who comes in the story to Adam and Eve and says, what's really going to happen if you eat the fruit? To which they say, we eat the fruit, we will be like God. The temptation for Adam and Eve was to eat the fruit, to be like God. Like being human wasn't good enough for Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. And the serpent comes to Jesus in the wilderness as a human with the very same temptations. If you are then do these things. And each of them really is a temptation away from what it means to be human um, and kind of into some kind of more God-like state, um, to be more than human. It's almost like the, the accuser comes to Jesus and he's like, you're God, right? So act like it. And in every instance, Jesus refuses to act as a God would act and instead chooses to be human, fully human, the way we were always meant to be fully human, but with a spiritual life. And so I think that's a beautiful undoing of the brokenness of Genesis chapter 3, that Jesus is redoing the call to be human. And in that call to be human, he is dignifying the human experience. And he's showing us how to embrace our humanity and love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. So each of these temptations, I want to share a few thoughts about them. And again, I want to, this is what I want to say. 
certainly when we're preaching like this and we're sharing different perspectives and even as I stand in front of you tonight, I do not want you to hear this is what I think you should believe. Um, the Bible is much bigger than that. Um, what I want to share with you is some of the thoughts I've had about these passages and if they land with you, that's great and if you think differently about them, there's lots of room for that as well. So I just, you know, I want to say that about the nature of speaking like this. So Matthew chapter four, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, stones to bread. The temptation to um, turn stones into bread. So the tempter comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I don't know about you, but I... Humans do not have the capacity to turn stones into bread. I mean, we can do a lot of things, and we invented the smartphone, but we have not yet invented a way to turn stones into bread. Like that, to turn stones into bread is a non-human activity so far in the evolution of humanity. This is a major temptation for Jesus to, to use his God powers to do things that are impossible for humans to do. Um, it's a temptation for him to override, to supersede and to be unfaithful to his human nature because humans can't turn stones into bread. Um, and I think it's a, I guess it's an invitation for us to see that the way of God is not via instant satisfaction or the avoidance of discomfort. Now, if it's true that Jesus fasted for 40 days and it says he was hungry, don't you think everything inside of him would be craving bread? I mean, he, he wasn't gluten intolerant as far as I could tell. Like, you know, the, the, what, bread? You know when you're hungry, you just want bread? Or maybe you want hot chips. I don't know what you want. Maybe you want raspberries or something really healthy. But like... This, this craving, like he was hungry. He was experiencing what it really means to be human, which is sometimes to really be hungry and thirsty and uncomfortable. And the accuser comes to him with the temptation to like magic himself out of the discomfort to fix the hunger instantly. I mean, come on, Jesus, if you can fix your own hunger, you can fix the world's hunger, right? Isn't that a good thing? Like, it's a temptation to, like, override what it means to be human. Um, and I, I genuinely think that there are some conditions of being human that simply cannot be overcome with sheer spiritual muscle. But there are conditions of being human that we're invited to, to enjoy and to bear with dignity um, or to carry and I don't mean like experience of being human that we just kind of like grit our teeth and endure it and like it's like, oh, it's so awful to be human. But what I mean is that there are just some things about being human that you can't spiritualize yourself out of. If you're hungry, you, you need to eat food. If you're thirsty, you need to eat drink. If you're going through puberty, which no one here in the room is, but we all have, you just have to go through puberty. If you're aging and going grey and getting wrinkles, you just have to go grey and get wrinkles. Well, you can do Botox, but you're just delaying the inevitable, right? 
and making yourself look a bit bizarre in the, in the process. To grow, to learn, to make mistakes as you're growing and learning, to stub your toe, to get hungry, to grieve because you love someone, to lose people that you love. These are all what it means to be human, to have children and worry about them. This is what it means to be human. And, and I think there is a dignity that Jesus is inviting us into to recognise that there are some things about being human that are just what it is to be human. And you can't avoid it by being super spiritual. You just have to, you have to find a way through. I think this is, this for me is a little bit about what the stones to bread is all about. But it's not like we're just left alone in our humanness. And this is where Jesus' reply is beautiful because he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or man, it's not just the satisfactions or the, the things that we need in order to be human, but we do need the life of God in us. We need the breath of God in us. That that word about, you know, coming from the mouth of God means coming from like the mouth of a river, like the fountain of God. It means the essence of God. It means everything that comes and breathes out of God's mouth. Like to be human, we need more than just instant satisfaction and our flesh satisfied. And we, we need like the life force of God flowing through us. But I do think there is something here to caution us against this idea of spiritual bypassing, which is a word that I think we're coming to understand a little bit more these days, is that there are some things about being human that you just cannot bypass with spiritual muscle. To be human is to be holy because God became human and he dignified our humanness with his very flesh. And some things we just carry in our humanness, like growth, like learning, like hunger, like thirst, like puberty, like aging, because we're human. And in those things, the breath and life and fountain of God sustains us. And so I think this thing is a caution against us thinking we can be super spiritual and use muscles to bypass what is just ordinary humanity. Because Jesus resists that. He doesn't use his God powers to avoid the ordinariness of being human. And neither should you try to use your spiritual life or your spiritual muscles to avoid what it just means to be human. You can find the life of God hidden deep within your very humanity. The next temptation, the accuser comes to Jesus and says... um, Let's go um, stand on the highest point of the temple. And this is why I gave, did did Jesus fly from the wilderness to the top of the temple? No, it happened in here, the temptations. Takes him to the the, um, highest point of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down because it's written, God God will save you if you do that. And... um, one of the things that's interesting to know about this temptation is there, at the time, around the time of Jesus, there was a rabbinic saying that said, when the king and the Messiah reveals himself, he'll come and stand on the roof of the temple. <laughs> I don't know why. They, 
Just thought that was a good idea. So the temptation really here is for Jesus to fully reveal himself, like, hey, I'm here, Messiah's come, king has arrived, standing on the roof of the temple like everyone said I would. And um, Jesus resists that um, temptation to fully reveal himself. But I am really intrigued at the moment about the interplay between um, the accuser using the promises of God to tempt Jesus away from being faithful. And that to me is a really interesting dynamic. How, you know, because if, if we're to read the, let me read the Psalm 91 that the, the accuser is quoting to Jesus. This is part of it, 9 to 16. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is a beautiful promise in Psalm 91 that the accuser tempts Jesus to take literally. And Jesus counteracts with a different verse of scripture that says, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. And I think I'm really interested in this temptation at the moment because a lot of my questions and wrestling with God of late, last couple of years, have really had to do with the power of God at work in the world. And... And I think some of the dissonance that I've been experiencing in my own life has come from being given word like scriptures like Psalm 91 as um, in my discipleship process alongside the inevitable, whether this was said to me outright or whether or not it's the way I processed it in my mind, God will keep me safe. Nothing bad will happen to me if I love the Lord. This is what it kind of says. Actually, I'm not even interpreting it. That's actually <laughs> what it says. And I've heard Christians say, oh, you know, you won't even sprain an ankle because the Lord says that you won't even, like, you won't hit your foot against a stone, like you never stub your toe. Like, so somewhere in my growing up brain, I process this idea that God promises to keep his people safe. And then inevitably, as you become an adult, you realise that actually there's very little safety in this world. And somewhere in the mess of that, you have to process where is God? So I have had and still have some dissonance around how do we understand the promises of God in Scripture? How do we take courage? How do we find peace in them? How do we leave space for the fact that God doesn't seem to always keep his promises because stuff happens and we're not always kept safe. 
And so it's interesting to me that the accuser comes to Jesus with a promise. He uses this promise of literal safety. Jesus, you can jump off the roof of the temple and because you're the son of God, the angels will catch you. And if you do it so that everybody sees, they'll know that you're God. And Jesus resists this idea of taking that promise super literally and instead says, it also says, don't test God. And so this is an interesting interplay of what you could say the Bible being used against the Bible. And I don't know that I have a lot to say about this. I just want to say that this complication is present in Scripture. And if you haven't yet wrestled with it, you probably will one day. Um, What do we do with the literalness of Scripture? And how do we hold space for God's promises to be yes and amen in the midst of a world where chaos, pain, grief, war, trauma and abuse also happens both to those who love and follow God and those who don't. And I don't have the answers, but I do have some tension. And it really came home for me one night recently. Lexi went on a Christian camp in January and um, she came home from that camp and I, I was um, saying goodnight to her one night. We were sitting and chatting and having a good talk and I, I said to her, Lexi, tell me what you, what you learn at the camp. And, you know... that. Christian camps are great and it was like an acronym for something, you know, BLAST or, you know, anyway, it was, it was, she told me all about it. But one of the things that she was told, like, God loves me, um, God is with me, God will keep me safe. And I remember having this bedtime conversation with Lexi and she says to me, God will keep me safe. They taught me God will keep me safe. And I'm sitting at the bedside of my 11-year-old daughter knowing the statistics of sexual abuse for women and I, I don't know how to tell her. I don't know that that's a promise. Is God a place of safety? Absolutely, God is safe. Will you always be safe in the world? I can't promise that. So this is the tension that it rises in me as a mum. How do I teach my children the promises of God so that they know that God is a refuge, that God is safe, that God loves them, that God is with them, but I do not give them a theology that will break their faith when they encounter trauma and pain because they will. And I feel like as parents and grandparents and the church, we need to do better at delivering theology to our children because I encounter so many people outside of the church currently and they have their faith has broken because they were given Psalm 91 as a promise and then they were raped and then they had friends die and they have no place in their faith to say do not put the Lord your God to the test there's 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 room for promises and there's room for pain and to be human is to somehow figure out how to hold all of it. So this is messy, and Jesus finds himself in the middle of the mess. The last one, and I, I want to finish up, I don't want to keep talking, but the last temptation, this, the accuser comes to Jesus and says, 
come on, I'll give you all the nations of the world, as if they were actually Satan's to begin with, which you could debate that theologically that they're not, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So whether he's overstating, overclaiming, I don't know. But he seems to promise that if Jesus would just worship him and bow the knee to him, that he could give Jesus all the nations of the world, which is really for Jesus the temptation to bypass the cross. I don't know if at that point of Jesus' temptation before his ministry, he knew that the cross was his destination. I suspect he had a suspicion because he'd seen so many people crucified before him. He probably thought he was get, that Rome would get him. But I don't know about you, but I think that would have been quite a strong temptation for Jesus to avoid the reality of laying down your life, going to the cross, co-suffering love. This is a temptation for Jesus to avoid suffering and to find the way of God in an easy way. And Jesus says no, that somehow he knows his path is the embrace of suffering. But even though Psalm 91 promises that those who love the Lord will have a long life, Jesus is willing to embrace the fact that he probably has a short one and it's going to end in some nails. And that's actually the way of God for him. And so he resists the easy way out, the way of comfort, the way of avoidance, in order to take the way of holy, sacrificing love. And I know that's a temptation that comes my way a lot. Take the easy way out. Loving is hard, it hurts, it costs. But there is a way for us to be faithful to God that doesn't run gung-ho into suffering, but at least embraces it as part of the path. It's good to be human. It's okay to be human. I think somehow this passage for me really dignifies the humanity of Jesus, that God would choose choose to be human rather than choose to be magic God in every circumstance, that he would choose the limitations and constraints of humanity, that he would embrace them, that he'd find the life of God within them, that he would learn that, that to be human is to acknowledge you're not God, you can't turn stones into bread, there are limitations, stuff does happen, suffering is sometimes the way and Jesus embraces it all and then goes on from there and I think there's so much challenge for me in this passage, so much richness and um, what I think I'd like us to do just to finish is I'm going to pray um, and then I'd like you to talk to someone next to you about what's, what you feel like God is stirring in you because um, that's way more important than anything I've said. Um, how you process this, what God is saying to you, what the Spirit is stirring in your heart. That's the important thing tonight. Um, and I think it would be good for us to just talk to one another about how we feel like God is moving in us. So let me pray. Jesus, I just really thank you that um, you took on flesh and you chose that and you embraced that and you never once used a get-out-of-jail-free card for the constraints of being flesh and being human. But you attempted 
and you learnt and you grew and you resisted and you knew suffering and you knew hunger and you knew pain and you knew loneliness, you knew wilderness, you knew laughter and joy and hugs and comfort and sorrow. You knew long nights of prayer, you knew betrayal, you knew it all. And so, God, we know that in our human experience, we are not alone, but we have a companion, one who goes before us, one who is with us, one who we can look to for comfort and friendship and love. And Jesus, I pray that this passage for us would be a source of comfort in all of our temptations in the ways that we attempted to be unfaithful to our task of being human, of following you, of choosing love. Would you be our companion, Jesus? And Lord, I just pray for each one of us and the things that you are doing in our hearts. Would you do and continue to do a deep work in us, Holy Spirit? Would you help us to love Jesus with all our hearts? Would you help us to honour God with the strength of our hands and the thoughts of our minds? That we would follow in the way of Jesus faithfully and we wouldn't be tempted to turn to the right or to the left, to deny our humanity, to satisfy our flesh, to take the easy way out. And God, I pray for each one of us that alongside the challenges and the temptations that we feel that rise up from within, we would always hear your voice calling out to us that we are your beloved, that you love us, that you're pleased with us. May we hear you call us by name. May we know that we belong to you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>